uh, it's harder to prevent the AI from spamming you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually a real issue we have. You know, yeah, for sure. Posting marriages over and over. Yeah, <laughs> like why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> come on, come on, guys. What about this other son I have? <laughs> yeah, I know. Are you sure? I had another son. They're yeah. twins. Yeah. <laughs> Is he better? Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you're listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to Henrik Farius, who is a game director at Paradox. He's best known as the project lead of Crusader Kings 2, but he's also worked extensively on both the Hearts of Iron and the Europa Universalis series. Also sitting in on the interview is John Schaefer, lead designer of Civ 5, and currently at work on his independent strategy game, At the Gates. So a good place to start is, uh, you know, how you got into gaming, you know, why you decided to be a game developer, how you got into the industry. Um, yeah. And uh, so, you know, what were the, what was the first time you found yourself drawn to games? Well, basically, I got into games in the very, you know, childhood of home computers. So right. basically, you know, I think we rented an Atari <laughs> video game, was it a, the 2600 or something like that console? And I played like these weird adventure games that they had on that console where you looked for keys and right, <laughs> fought yeah. dragons and stuff. But when I first played a strategy game, that's probably when I was really drawn into this. And that was on my Sinclair Spectrum 48K, mm. the British home computer. Right. The one we always hear about in the US but have no Yeah, I don't think it reached of. you guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was basically a crappier version of the Commodore 64. Right. The same kind of games were on both uh, machines. Okay. What were, the, so, what were the games that stood out back then? Yeah, I really, I was really hooked on some, you know, hex-based uh, war games. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> like Arnhem, you know, A Bridge Too Far, I think mm. it was called. Right. And that was kind of strange for a boy who was like 11 years old, I guess. Right. <laughs> but yeah. It really drew me in. I don't know. It depends uh, on. Who yeah. You're talking to. <laughs> Among this group, we probably <laughs> had all strange interests in war games at the age of 10. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, but then I moved on to some really cool games, I think, and games that still haven't been kind of realized uh, fully, you know, but potentially cool games. Like uh, The Lords of Midnight is one of my favorites, and mm. Doom Dark's Revenge by Mike Singleton. I've heard a lot about Lords of Midnight. I think it's, yeah, one that didn't really come over Yeah, the US, you can still so. play it on some emulators and stuff, and I think there's a PC version, or a couple, <laughs> actually. What's the, what's yeah. the idea behind it? Uh, basically, it's a first-person strategy game where you kind of move... Okay. Uh, during the day, so you have like action points. You could say you move yourself and your army around this landscape okay. <laughs> that you can see. Is it going in real time or uh, no? Like so you basically you have like any number of characters. And uh-huh. You move one, and then you move the next, and then you move the next, and, then and every move moves time forward. No, 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 no. Uh, and then it becomes night, okay. and then everything happens. Like oh, <laughs> right, so you're so deciding what's going to happen. For that yeah, day period, or exactly. Yeah. Okay. So for each character, it becomes night, and it says it's night. And the ice fair is very cold, or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And then you move the next character, and then you know, you, you move to the next day, and that's the next turn. Basically. Okay. And what are the, who are the characters exactly? It's basically a fantasy setting, and you move around, and you can talk to these guys, and you can recruit them. But the really cool thing is you see their armies, you know, <laughs> in the distance mm-hmm. with the flags and banners and everything. And you move closer, and you see, oh shit, this is like ten guys with. 20,000 men. Right. <laughs> and they're they're going to stomp me now, you know. And then you can if you don't have an army yourself, you can hide 
and they won't find you. But if you have troops, uh, you know, you might be killed. And what do you What are you trying to accomplish? Like, what's the? Basically, it's kind of a Lord of the Rings knockoff. Like uh, you could say, you know, you're you're trying to find the Ice Crown, which is basically the One Ring, okay. and destroy it by one of the three means you can destroy it. Okay. That almost, that almost to me sounds that that sounds a bit like an RPG, but yeah, like, it, it's kind of a strategy RPG. Okay, um, mm-hmm. but you can win it, you know, by actually fighting. Right, he's not called Sauron, <laughs> you know, he's uh, right, right. Doom Dark. Uh, okay, and destroying him. So, <laughs> so, this, so this was sort of a reskinning <laughs> thematically. Of, uh, thematically, like, yes, yeah, so I'd yeah. say it was pretty close. There okay, were elves and. Interesting. So there was there was almost like a like a traditional RPG path, and then there was like a you're going to fight a strategy game path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that that sounds like a classic '80s game in the terms of like they didn't respect. Well, there weren't boundaries. <laughs> the genres, no, yeah, there no. weren't boundaries to respect in the first exactly. place. So no, they're just, like, why not? Yeah. Right. The genesis of computer gaming. Basically. Yeah, it almost kind of reminds you of King of Dragon Pass in a little in, right. in a way because of how it blends those two and it yeah. a story uh, to some extent into strategy. That's true. Uh, that's, that's a more recent favorite of mine because it's so strange. Yeah, <laughs> more recent. But <laughs> that game is truly strange, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, but I think many of these 80s games really stood out for being truly unique. Yeah. And that's one of the games that really inspired me uh, when making Crusader Kings, the first, sure. the first game. Yeah. Yeah, I think the ambition of the games from the 80s is something that like is always in the back of our mind yeah. if we grew up through that era because... Nowadays, a game would never would be afraid to do something like that. You know, there would be that's overambitious. You know, you're yeah. you're having crazy scope, and to some sense, that's true. Like if you're if you're trying to, you know, do you know, do have an RPG and have a strategy game with that top level production, like yeah. that's probably a bad move. But there are other ways to make games, right? You know, you don't you don't necessarily have to show everything, mm-hmm. um, especially now. Yeah, no, we're so spoiled these days. I think. I mean, uh, Mike Singleton was, I think, a mathematics professor. And, you know, he hacked this in assembler <laughs> himself, mm. basically. And that's how it was done back in those days. And really working with a constraint of 48K memory. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And still having this huge landscape and everything. It's really, you know, that still blows my mind. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's when you had to be even more programmer than, than now. Yeah. Now it's like, eh, yeah. pound out some code, does yeah. some things. Back then you had to know just how to get the most out of such yeah. limited Absolutely. resources. Yeah. I love the fact that there are essentially regional roots differences from the era because it wasn't really a global games community at the time. Oh, that's right? true. Like, like for 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 me, like the touchstone games, there'd be things like Seven Cities of Gold, uh, that Lords, too. Lords of Conquest. Um, do those do those make those so those made oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I loved Seven Cities of Gold. Yeah. That's another game with huge potential. Mm. It's kind of a precursor to Civ, I guess, or you know, it's pirates. <laughs> Well, Pirate, uh, Sid's told me directly that, that Seven Seas of Gold was the game that inspired him to make Pirates. Right. Yeah, I can imagine, because it, it was kind of similar in a sense. Yeah. Uh, you almost just moved the era forward, like, 100, uh, 150 years or whatever. But also, yeah, I mean, colonization is mm. fairly close Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. In, in the general concept of Seven Seas of Gold, I think. Yeah. Although my forts in Seven Cities of Gold never really survived. They all so. just died. <laughs> yeah. <I laughs> For was, a bit unclear reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a game that... It's, it's probably incredible to realize how fast those games were made. Because that was... There was probably only a year, maybe a year and a half between Mule and Seven Cities of Gold. Which right. are two right. you know, hugely important and influential games. And like that just yeah. means he didn't you know, have much time to necessarily work on it. Um, and just... I had never seen anything like the random map generation in Semi Cities of Gold, right? Like, that was just, like, it blew my mind at the it time. It was awesome, yeah. Um, and, uh, 
still blows my mind now. Every day, I'm like, random maps. Yep, yep. That's how you do it. Yeah. Certainly some challenges with that, though. I can't imagine making it work back then. Yeah, well, I remember the computer took, like, five minutes to, like, generate a world, right? Mm, yeah. it, was, it was pretty crazy. <laughs> it was um, wild. So, at that point, did you feel like you wanted to make games, or is it just, like, games are the thing you were passionate about? Yeah, no, I wanted to make games, and I, I always kind of loved maps, for example. <laughs> I, I sat oh, yeah. and drew, drew maps and imagined, you know, the sure. the troops fighting. I drew little armies and <laughs> everything. I must have been some kind of general or armchair general in a previous life. <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, it's always drawn me somehow. Yeah, strategy guys uh, definitely always have an affinity for that maps, for yeah. sure. Um, did you... Um, did you try? Did you, I don't actually know. Do you have a programming background, or are you always? Are you I do. Design? Yeah, I'm a programmer as well. Okay, um, cool. So I basically started out at Paradox doing uh, programming, okay. AI programming, especially. Right. So did you teach yourself to program then in that like in the eighties? No, 90s? actually, not that much. Um, well, a little bit, yeah. But it was mostly you know university uh, right, right. courses and stuff. So you were at that point, you were kind of designing games on on paper. Exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, I did some you know fairly basic games. Um, board gamey types things like you know monopoly <laughs> right 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 <laughs> just to see if i could do it yeah but no real new games no yeah and when you went to school did you decide right away try to try to do computer science yeah uh it was always my ambition basically i wanted to learn to program so i could actually make games uh not you know to program by itself you know that that's kind of cool and right. rewarding but it's not my primary interest. It's game design, really. So I, I learned to program to, so that I can make games. The means to an end. Yeah. 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 I, I usually had a, a similar feeling about about programming. Right. Like it's just you know it's, it's a it's a tool. Yeah. It's, it's a real powerful tool. Like it really gives you a lot of power if you can know how to program. Yeah. I mean, it's really stimulating and rewarding to see your algorithms come to life and actually work as you envisioned they would. You know, when it comes to AI, you know, armies moving around in Hearts of Iron or something like that. Um, but then when, you know, it's something you never feel, you never feel finished. There's always more to do. And you, you never feel like done with AI, which is also frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at least for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say programming is particularly essential in the strategy genre because of how many mechanics there are and how closely they have to connect together. And this is something I know we've talked before about Soren, which is, you know, that the distance between designer and game. And if you have programmers in between doing gameplay it becomes much much harder to get that game to work and be good and integrate yeah. with what's going on you almost i don't know if you need that to be one person but it certainly helps <laughs> it does help a lot and it's like working on crusader kings 2 these days i don't have that much time to program anymore right but i'm still in there constantly messing around with game mechanics and i think within the code base you yeah mean? in the okay. code base and you know i still have a sense that some things with that game, only I really understand, which yeah. is kind of, that's worrying, you know. I can't really leave it to someone else <laughs> entirely. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not surprised. I mean, uh, it's, it's really, it, oftentimes it seems to me it would be harder to describe a system and then trust someone else to do it yeah. as opposed to just writing it yourself, you know. It is. Um, you, know, it, you know, it's going to be hard the first time, and then you know there's going to be all this iteration about, um, you know, you know, getting it exactly the way. Because probably it's not going to be the way you want it to be, and probably it was implemented the way you thought it was going to be to begin right. with, right? Um. That's probably that's <laughs> the thing is that's probably the case. Even if you do do it, <laughs> right. it's much well, it's easier just, to rip it out and change yeah. it when you've been the, the one with it the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I often find one of the tricky things about writing gameplay code is it's one thing to say this is how the system can work to tell someone that, and then they implement it. But at the same time, you also in your head know the parts that you're more certain about and the parts that you're less certain about 
and the parts that you know might be changed. Yeah. And so you can, there's, there's different ways to architect code, right? And there's ways to write it knowing that certain parts might need to get changed as right. opposed to other, you know, like other things you're like, okay, this is going to be totally set in stone because, you know, no matter what, this is probably not going to change. And that, that I think is extremely difficult to communicate to people, right? It is, yeah. What can you change? What can you not? And so on, yeah. yeah. I was really impressed with the core DLL you had for Civ 4, right? Mm. Uh, and that you actually had the guts to <laughs> to make that open source, basically, so people can mod it. Yeah, well, that was that was one of those sort of um, processes of you just you just keep talking about it until it's true. Right. <laughs> um, like we never really got official permission. I mean, obviously we did because the company <laughs> knew knew it was knew it was happening and like right. it became a part of the project. But like you know, we never had like a pitch meeting of like, okay, we want to do this radical thing. We want right. to release the source code. Um, and uh, because I was kind of afraid that you know you you ask for that stuff there you know without a clear benefit because it's hard to it's hard to tie it's hard to ex- explain the the you know the dollars and cents behind yeah. uh, supporting modding. Um, you know, like I have a sense of it helping sell the game, but I might even be wrong. Like I'm not sure. I am, uh, modding is something that I'm excited about simply because I find it very personally rewarding yeah. to see people extend the work that that I've done. You know, like I think that's that's really awesome, and I, I hope that shows up in the ultimate sales of the game. But but you know, I'm not sure. Um, and in that type of situation, like how do you um, how do you uh, you know, make a make a solid pitch that you know they should do something like release the source code right. to, to uh, game a sieve. That is a pretty big step. Right. Um, so what we did is we just engineered it so it would be possible. Yeah, you know, we put all the game we put all the game code in a place where it was kind of separate from graphics and sound and networking and whatnot. And then then we uh, we got it set up so it could compile into the DLL. Um, and then I just started talking about it a lot internally, and no one really said anything. So right. then I started talking about it to the press. And then it just became a thing, right? Um, and uh, ask for forgiveness. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it took you know, it, you know, once the sort of became, once we had to, you know, once we did talk about the 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 official processes about, you know, there was there was some you know give and take of like, oh well, we're going to wait a while to do it. We're going to do wait for the right. patches and whatnot, and that that's all fine. Um, but you know, all, all I wanted to make sure of is that you know eventually you could release the. The, the code yeah. and the the mods like fall from heaven would have been totally impossible without yeah, the without the uh, the game core. Um, well, I'm absolutely I'm absolutely sure it helps sell the game. You know, you target an audience that's very like you. I mean, I make the games I want to play myself, yeah. and then there are these people just on the sides of that who would like to you know tweak the parameters a little bit, mm-hmm. and then there are the people who kind of like the engine right. <laughs> that you provide and want to do something totally different and that's yeah. fine too you know, so. and then there are people who like the things that those people make yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it doesn't end really yeah. Yeah. well it's this funny thing right because you know the modders can do things that you like literally cannot do right, right? and Sometimes that's game design, and sometimes that's well, they're going to make a Game of Thrones mod yeah. for Crusader Kings, right? Like yeah. because that's like obviously that's like chocolate and peanut butter, mm-hmm. like that's a that's an awesome combination. But like if you guys wanted to do that, well, then you know you have a, a giant <laughs> you know um, negotiation process, yeah, exactly. and, yeah. and you know well you know you know people are probably going to do it anyway, so yeah. um, you know that, that well, there's that, and modders can also like throw infinite resources at stuff. Sometimes oh, sure. you know they have all the time in the world. <laughs> Yeah, to, to do stuff. So. Yeah, yeah that's cool. I don't have quality control, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crowdsource quality control. Yeah, um, yeah. 
So you, uh, so at this point, you were um, you were studying uh, computer science in college. Yeah. And were you were you making like game like projects? Was that possible at your school? So I know no. that's more or less possible different schools. Like not really. It was really hard. And yeah. There were no really, you know, there were no computer games companies in the area at the time. Were you, was, uh, was this this was Sweden? This is north of Sweden, uh, the far north, basically. Far north of Sweden. Uh, okay. So there weren't that many opportunities for that, unfortunately. Okay. Did Paradox exist at this point? Paradox existed in they had an a older history, form. right? Yeah. yeah, it grew out of another company, a board game company. Right. They basically started doing a kind of Dungeons and Dragons clone, basically, right. <laughs> in Sweden. Right. <laughs> it was called Dragons and Demons. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow, really stretchy, stretching it there. <laughs> yeah. And that was back in the early '80s. Basically. Yeah. So they, it grew out of that. Okay. So. Um, and when did you was so when you finished, so you, you, know, you got your CS degree, did you start applying to, what, what, what did you do with that? Actually, I, I started working with online stock trading, which was kind of soul-killing, you know, making uh, that kind of code. Right. Um, but I made a mod for European Solace 1, and they actually liked it so much that they hired me. Okay. <laughs> so I guess it was fate or something. That's good. Well, that's, <laughs> that's why I tell a lot of people who want to get in the uh, games industry and they're not really sure where to start, is just yeah. start working on a mod. Um, and That's what I tell everybody. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, how do we do that? Well, <laughs> there's there's only one decent bet. <laughs> the rest of the time, unless you're just an amazing artist or an amazing engineer, if you want to make games, if you want to be a game designer, yeah. that's that's kind of the way in. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. It's good to have another example to point to. Yeah, I mean, we've hired uh, some well, other modders after that as well. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, we we I, I often look for modders. Um, yeah. I mean, John was sort of in that category. I'm not sure. I definitely was. Yeah. I mean, the the only reason you guys ended up bringing me in is because I did the unspeakable act of documenting your right. Python. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was impressive. No one wants to do documentation. So Soren said, "That's an unconventional way." Into yeah. this guy, this guy might be insane, but we could use it. Use that insane. That's true. Somehow. You, it's probably true. You, you, mod is a good thing, but if you really want to get a company's attention, write their documentation for them. <laughs> <laughs> that would blow their mind. Uh, I don't do as much documentation anymore. I'll, yeah, I'll, oh, I'll say that. Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, well, that's funny. So what was the what was the mod then? What were you, what did it you was do? basically one of these conceited mods where I thought I could improve everything <laughs> in the game and make it better. <laughs> nice, I like the, I like the way you put that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I did something similar. I think we for all Hearts of Iron, but I kind of scoped down to just the AI. I'm right. like, I'll make just the AI better. Yeah, right. The yeah. whole game. I think we all start that way. You know, like well, who are these? Who, what do these guys think? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I had some pet peeves and I wanted to fix yeah. them. What what, uh, what were they? I mean, it's interesting to hear. Uh, it had to do with you know historical accuracy stuff mostly. You know, okay. um, there nice. are no, there's no lapish culture. <laughs> <laughs> how much how much did the borders of the provinces just kill you? Uh, a little bit, but being from Sweden, at least we got a Swedish. Oh border, yeah, right, you know? that's right. There was one country. Yeah, on that, one that country had, probably had great borders. borders. Yeah. I do remember that being an issue in the mod community. Right. Like, we want to change the shape and. Like, Ugh. <laughs> so can't what do that? What did modding look like for EU one at that point? Like, what were there just text files, or I, mean, I assume there wasn't code? No, so it was what, no, no code. But we have ha we have our like homegrown script language that we still use to this day in our games, and uh, it's fairly horrible. Uh, but it does the job, and by now it's kind of second nature. But right. it's you know scripting and uh, map modding was really hard in EU. You had to like uh, process it. Or there yeah, was, there was a there was a middle step there that was very obscure, but these days it's really easy. So 
we've come a long way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 3D helps with that. Yes. <laughs> a lot. It does. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's kind of script modding, mostly. Pausing for one second here. I, re- I realize I probably should have done this to begin with. I can do have a backup on uh, my uh, iPhone. So. If anything else wrong. Worst case, so. Worst case. Anyway, everything will, everything will probably be fine. I'm very nervous <laughs> about the first podcast. So it seems like it's a tradition with podcasters that the first podcast turns into something like, yeah, one guy was missing. <laughs> like, you know, right. half of it is garbled. Uh, so somehow we'll, we'll try to avoid that. Oh. <laughs> Compressed beyond belief. Yeah. So what was it? Did they just contact you out of the blue or what was it? Uh, Pretty much, yeah. Wow. They did. Well, I was active on the forums. and uh, Sure. Again, with some pretty cocky posts. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to like uh, that. I, uh, I I try not to read some of my old posts right. from back in the day, but no, I feel so often I come across one of them. I feel oh, embarrassed dear. about the person I was in those days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the young guy. Yeah. It's important to remember when you like see, you know, people of that generation. You know, the, their attitude. You know, the person might have talent, and they just come across as you know they right. think they know everything because that's just part of being twenty three <laughs> or whatever. You know. <laughs> Um, it's also part of wanting to be a game designer. Yeah. I know I know how to represent this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You might or might not. You probably don't. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you start on then after that? Like they hired you to be a programmer? No, or? actually I was hired to be a scripter on Europe Marsalis 2. Okay. And that game was, you know, I don't think it should have been a sequel, really. It was more of an expansion for EU one. Okay. Um, so it was very similar. But I did a lot of events for that game. Okay. What does scripting mean in that for for that game? Like, That's basically the you know narrative events that we have in the game, okay. like historical occurrences that happen, and you, you usually make a choice, but sometimes it's just oh shit happened, right, <laughs> deal right, with right. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Minus two stability, uh, but you know yeah. So that's the kind of stuff I did. And what was what was the format for that? I mean, I'm sometimes curious about exactly how companies structure these type of things. Right. Like, was there a was there a scripting language? Were these like trigger and event files like uh, like a spreadsheet like what was it how no, did you we, put it together? there was an event design and then we I used the script language that we have for everything basically okay. uh, to write this your device. own proprietary scripting yeah, language basically exactly, yeah okay Does, do you guys still use that we still use it in a heavily modified form uh, <laughs> we still haven't put it into our kind of engine though hmm. so it's different in all of our games with different triggers and structure so it's kind of messy that way but it, it, it does the job and it's quick it's so, fast. so basically it's game code yeah it is <laughs> right yeah <laughs> well I think it it's game code. So, I think it's sometimes useful to have a scripting language only in the sense that you have like this thick line between like this is kind of the code that could go wrong and the code like the, the scripting code like this is the code that like you know we could we could kind of pull this stuff out and throw it away if we had yeah. to whereas there's the engine code which is like this is the stuff we really have to make sure is working perfectly yeah. Um, no, we actually explored uh, quite recently if we could do this in Lua mm. instead. Yeah, I was curious about uh, that. Yeah. But unfortunately, it turns out it's not fast enough. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, we couldn't get it fast enough at least. Uh, huh. Um, it's close, but we decided to keep working with our own language for a while. That's interesting. I never, I, I wouldn't think of, well, I would, I don't know, it'd be here, interesting to hear about that. I don't, I don't necessarily think of the EU or Crusader King games as being resource constrained but I guess if I think about Crusader Kings you've got thousands of characters in the yeah, game yeah there's like probably like 30,000 living characters <laughs> at any point and they evaluate events that could happen for them right. you know, all the time basically I mean I, I suppose these games are, are the ultimate in, in sort of like gameplay you know, 
gameplay hitting the CPU as opposed to the graphics or yeah. anything else. Um, of course, we. I mean, we could cheat stuff and you know make certain certain categories of characters didn't actually get these evaluations and stuff. Right. But so um, you've probably seen firsthand then. How has the has the gameplay been able to? Ch- so you know, EU1 came out what like around what year? E1 was probably 2000, 2001, right. something like that. So the whole, you know, sort of giant series of you know similar games uh, have uh, you know it's been thirteen years or so. Yeah. Has the gameplay been able to change because of technolo- technological improvement? I mean, the, there's got to be stuff that's in EU4 and Crusader Kings 2 that simply would not have been possible technology-wise yeah. back uh, in like 2000. I think it's more for us memory actually mm, that's yeah. been the main constraint. RAM. Um, CPU we could work around, do less pathfinding and stuff, but RAM has been an issue. And I mean, Crusader Kings we couldn't have done. Crusader Kings two we couldn't have done back when we did Crusader Kings one in two thousand and four. It wouldn't have been possible, basically. Right. You'd have to you'd have to constantly be saving out random stuff to. Disk yeah, I mean, it, it could have in. been possible. It would have been harder. We would have had to have some kind of database and stuff. Um, yeah. So with okay. with Crusader Kings two, you basically you have everything in RAM yeah. at one time. Yeah. <laughs> Although we're right there on the limit now, so we might have to actually start using a database. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna need the sixty four four bit assistant. <laughs> like, what's gonna yeah. save save you guys? Like, yeah. we need to to blow up the the memory. It's, it's oh, it's it's mostly been memory. Yeah. Okay. Uh, CPU we can usually profile and optimize. Right. Right. So okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we have however many hundreds or thousands of provinces and however many thousands of characters or yeah. units and just I, a lot of times you'll think about it but the scope of that is just ridiculous so if you have even five attributes per character yeah times, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah exactly it yeah. just it blows up exponentially yeah so so what was your experience like with EU2 you know being the first, this is the first time you're with a you know a, a, Officially with the development team, you know, it was kind of project work. It was a crazy time because I hadn't actually quit my first job. Okay, <laughs> so I had two jobs full time. So uh, you were doing it remotely? Yeah, so for half a year from okay. where I lived. So it was like sixteen hours a day, at least. And that was because they they weren't ready to hire you f- like full time, full time. Uh, no, actually, yeah, it was kind of some project uh, employment I had. So. Okay. But then they were very happy with that, so I, I got employed. Okay. And I was actually entrusted with designing Hearts of Iron, the first game. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. What was and then the cycle repeat itself. I said, who made this game? I can fix this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, tell me, tell me about that. So you were there from the very, at the very beginning of Hearts of Iron. Yeah. So uh, how, did that, how did that... Yeah, so I, I sat down and basically in my little apartment up in Luleå and, and wrote this huge design document couple of hundred pages <laughs> most of which we then decided to throw out because now, uh, to be clear for our, our non-Swedish listeners does this mean you're still a distance away from yeah, Paradox um, or uh, like what, what is that it's like a thousand kilometers so that's what 600 miles okay it's a good distance then. yeah, yeah. Well. away so I flew down from time to time and talked to the guys but usually I sat at home working working away well that's a pretty big that's a pretty big risk, I'd say, for a, a developer to commit to a, a new big project and for the lead designer not to be uh, yeah. uh, located. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, on paper, Joel Anderson was still the lead designer for okay. that game. Right. But I think, you know, the idea was that I would do the design, and it mm-hmm. turned out that well. Okay. So. And what was, your, uh, what was your original, like, what were some of your original goals? With, I mean, with that game, 
uh, I was heavily inspired by World in Flames, the, mm-hmm. the board game. Yeah. So that was kind of the, the benchmark, really. Um, and at the time, I was also hugely interested in World War II in general, basically. So, I don't know, but design goals were basically to make a more open-ended type World War II game um, than any I'd previously seen before, you know. And ideally, you would be able to play any country in the world and, and do what you could with that, even, right. even if not much. <laughs> I, I, re- I really like the asymmetrical uh, start that we have in our games, and I think that's fairly unique, you know. With a historical setting, uh, things aren't equal. <laughs> right, right. You know, so, so it's you- kind of a natural difficulty level, and I, I like that concept. Do you get crazy variations in playthroughs of Hearts of Iron where, you know, like alliances shift? I, I just or uh, you know something really a historical happens or how does yeah, that, that's what that was the problem in Hearts of Iron. It's kind of schizophrenic in a way that game because mm-hmm. it's still purporting to be a World War II war game. Right. Uh, so we kind of need to force things back on track <laughs> right, somehow right. at times. Like, how did you handle uh, America, for example? Like, that yeah, seems like it would be a pretty big that issue. Was a, that was a problem. Um, uh, I think we used some similar system to what they had in uh, World in Flames, with basically, you know, tensions growing <laughs> over the war, and uh, eventually they could join. So, uh, but yeah, it's not much fun to play a democracy in, <laughs> in a game like that, because right. you have these constraints. You cannot declare war. You, it's not like a sandbox game. So no, it, it's hard. It's, I still think that Hearts of Iron is kind of a schizophrenic game. <laughs> right, right. That way. Yeah. Is it... How much do you think the fact... I mean, I, what percentage of the code base is, would be shared between, like, EU2 and Hearts of Iron 1 at that point? All of it, basically. I mean, it ran on the same engine, the old Europa engine. Right. Uh, so it was basically the same engine. And so how much did that dictate kind of the limitations on the design of the game? Like, how much different would you have made the game if, you know, you had the resources to kind of build something from scratch? I would probably have preferred at that time to make it a hex-based game, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't possible. We had more provinces, though, to kind of simulate that. And especially with Hearts of Iron 3, of course, later on, we had even more provinces for the tactical uh, opportunities that it gives to have more places to move, essentially. Right. So that, that was one of the constraints, and it was hard to get around. Um, and also this this thing that in, in Europa Rosales and our other historical games, they're more grand strategy games where, right. where you know, you're free to do anything. And I like that, but I also wanted the game to be World War Two and not some other right. <laughs> World War fantasy World War. Like, yeah, um, I and mean, I've, I've played EU, I played Crusader, King, Crusader Kings, but I haven't played Hearts of Iron. It always seemed to me that the the if they use a similar engine, it seems like there'd be these big scale problems, you know, like the time obviously is extremely compressed compared to those other games Um, and, you know, yeah World War II was definitely a global war but really there were specific parts of the world which were the sort of quote-unquote important parts and then there was just a whole lot of rest of the world and, you know, like how do you make that work? Yeah, um, I mean (laughs) there are some countries that would have been feasible to play on their own kind of thing, you know, like Argentina Brazil Turkey, Spain, like these semi-big <laughs> countries, they could probably run some interesting thing in the game, but um, hard. Again, very hard. But one of the things that frustrated me the most with the European Solis was the fact that the, the original game was that you could only play these great powers. And mm-hmm. I remember posting about that on a forum, being very upset that you couldn't play these 
well, why can't you play any country? Well, you can you can mod it in. You, you just, but no. Uh, and the same thing go, goes for World War II. Um, it is frustrating in a way that you only can play like Germany, France, right. the UK, the US, Russia, yeah. Japan. Did you play the original Hearts of Iron? Oh yes. So what yes. were your what were your thoughts about it? I really really liked it, and it definitely has a different focus from the game like EU two or EU. Yeah. Uh, it is more of a war game, and I think that does kind of push you more in the direction of playing as one of the major powers. And for me, I, I always thought that was fun. I played Germany in ninety percent of my games, and you know maybe so. Really <laughs> <laughs> interesting. I mean, that's 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 kind of I think a lot of where people come from World War Two from like, that. Germany was the driver. Germany had yeah. the big army. Germany had right. the technological leaps. The, Germany invented the initiative, right. So that was... Plus and, they and, lost, right? So. <laughs> yeah. I think there is a little bit of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, people like the underdogs, the losers, and they want to create alternate history. I don't know if it's appropriate to call Germany the underdog, though, but, you know, <laughs> in the end... They, <laughs> it didn't feel like the underdog at the time. No, but, yeah. in the end they lost. But, yeah, you know, I, I agree. You, you usually want to play the guys with the initiative, you know, the drivers... Of the whole conflict. Yeah. Whereas in a game um, like EU2, I would say, you could play Portugal. I mean, yeah. it, it's since Portugal's still do driver <laughs> of history in, in that era, but so many countries were. Whereas yeah. World War II is very much more focused. And, yeah, there, there were certainly some elements of it that did seem a little odd. The provinces with the combat wasn't a great fit, but it also helped make it a little bit easier to digest as a player. Like, okay, there's only so many provinces. My armies are here. Yeah. I have tanks. I have infantry. It wasn't, all right, I have Panzer, you know, Mark Threes, you know, three E's and three F's over here. Right. And, it, you know, had it been hexes, I think it would have been a lot tougher to get into, even if it would have ultimately resulted in richer gameplay. So it's, yeah. it's one of those weird things where I think a lot of times game design constraints can make it game what it is, or make a game better a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you share the same opinion about that particular feature, but just an observation I've had over the years. No, I agree. Um, I'm, I said at the time I would probably have made a hex-based game if I had had a choice. The, right. Today, I wouldn't. You know, And, and mm-hmm. there, there had been other province-based World War II games, like Storm Across Europe, I think it was called, right. for example. So it was definitely doable, and I think it was the correct choice in the end. You know, it's a strategy game, so you want to kind of bring the conflict to a little bit higher level. Sure. Um, yeah. Have you played uh, Battle of the Bulge for the iPad? I haven't. No. Okay. I've heard a lot of good things about it. Yeah, it's, it's a really good so, game, and obviously the scale there is a little tighter. But they also use um, and, and they they have a their old SPI Avalon Hill war gamers, so yeah. they they know plenty about hexes, but they chose to go with territory based yeah. based combat, and it it definitely uh, it's definitely an interesting game. Um, it. Uh, um, you know, each each territory has its own flavor. You know, in terms of like what it's adjacent to, and the you know the you know a river boundary or a forest yeah. here, or you know, this one is like you know this is the, the important choke point and whatnot. And, yeah, and there's there there's definitely a lot to that. So the territories are kind of individually crafted to make interesting yeah. terrain. Yeah, they, it's a hand hand drawn territory territory based map. Um, no, I can see that. that. That's actually an advantage over hexes, I suppose. Yeah. It is. There's a weird, weird relationship between provinces and hexes, and that's a question I still get now. Uh, even with uh, at the gates, I got an email saying, "Hey, you know, I, I showed off a screenshot of how I was combining hexes and to make uh, provinces 
in a way. And somebody yeah. said, hey, will you be able to play the game with provinces? Like, no, it's just kind of the AI visual yeah. organization of right. things. But there's always kind of that drive of maybe it goes back to the maps that we were talking about. We, we're used to seeing these lines. We're used to seeing these boundaries that are colored Group, all grouped the together, same. Grouped together, yeah. And there's something innate about that. Yeah. Uh, what it, it's completely different. It's so completely different. Yeah. One of the first, like, sort of design uh, ideas that we tried with Civ 3 that didn't that eventually got, got cut is we actually tried to have this concept of, like, the, the hexes or the tiles at the time. The tiles <laughs> will eventually group themselves, you know, like, naturally into provinces. So you start out with tiles, and then they become provinces. And, like, and it was just... Civ very much goes down to the tile. Yeah. It, was, it was hard to break away from. Um, you know, if you're, I think if you're very used to designing one way or another, like you see the you see the advantages of the other side, but you know, like you, you forget the thing that you're getting for the, with what you're already using. You know? Yeah. Where where would you say you fall in the uh, hex versus province spectrum now? Obviously, you've spent a lot of time on one end. Yeah, no, I I can see a combination working actually. Um, I could see provinces that are made up of hexes. Mm-hmm. You know. A kind of super structure, <laughs> right? For the hexes, and there's there's uh, rules about being within one province, but you can also yeah. move from from yeah, location exactly. to location. You know, and, and you'd have a capital and you know locations within the province that would you know make sense, and be no, I I I'd like to make a game like that. For example, Crusader Kings has these holdings and castles within the provinces. Sure. But there's only one position you can go into. <laughs> the yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah so I was. could actually make. You know, we could work it with hexes. That would be awesome. Yeah. It kind yeah. of reminds me a little bit of um, Lords of the Realm, where the map was province-based, but the, there were tiles that you moved the armies around. Yeah. And you had a farm. You move the army to the farm and burn it. You had to get to the castle to right. seize the castle. So it's kind of multi-layer. The provinces where economics are kind of pooled. Right. Well, Total War sort of works like that. Yeah, too, they have right? the same thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which came a little bit after. Yeah, the, yeah, Lord yeah. The, yeah, that's true. Lord of the Rings. They came a lot after that. <laughs> uh, Lords, Lords of the Realm. Yeah, Ugh. yeah. I like that. I like, I cool like those game, games yeah. a lot. Sure. Um, that's cool. So after, so after Hearts of Iron, what was what was next for you at that point? Uh, I think it was. Oh, let's see. I must think back now. I can't remember if we did Victoria or Crusader Kings first. I think we did Victoria, and Crusader Kings was supposed to be outsourced, actually, to a Russian studio. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> so we we kind of designed Crusader Kings while working on Victoria, if I recall correctly now. Okay. My memory isn't that good. And then the Russian studio kind of failed, mm-hmm. <laughs> or we weren't happy with it. So we brought it in, and kind of one guy coded the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> in a couple of months. <laughs> so... Was Crusader so, Kings 2, so internally, I suppose at that time, Crusader Kings 2 was kind of a very speculative project at Paradox, would that be accurate? Like, uh, you know, one. One, like, one, yes, it was. Uh, it was kind of a different type of game. Um, that's what we liked about it as well. You know, Going back to the medieval times, mm-hmm. we wanted to take advantage of the fact that it was more a game about rulers and families and their relations with each other than a game of nations. Right. Yeah, and I, mean, uh, I mean that's certainly what people seem to respond to with Crusader yeah. Kings, and that was so that was a, a core part of the the design from the very beginning. Yeah, well, I think the original game had a huge amount of potential, and uh, you know I've always been sad <laughs> that we couldn't really realize that potential. It, yeah. uh, you know, so what so what happened? Tell tell the story of the, the first game then. Well, 
as I said, it was kind of a rush production because right. uh, after we brought it back into the, to do it internally, we had one guy programming away at it for like six months or something, mm-hmm. and I did the AI in a week or two, mm-hmm. uh, and that was pretty much it. Wow! And the company was in dire financial straits, so it didn't get any marketing, wow. <laughs> basically, uh, almost whatsoever. So no, it didn't do that well. Uh, still so turned a little profit. Okay. But so did people because people. Were People responded to it positively enough that like there was excitement for Crusader Kings two. Yes. Were they re- what were they responding to? Were they, were they responding to the potential, to the theme, to the, the the setting, to the the mechanics that were in Crusader Kings one? I think Crusader Kings one is a good game. Okay. Uh, basically, you know the mechanics are good. Right. It's fun to play, and it's also different. And you do get these emergent stories right. even in the first game. So well, yeah, what were the parts that worked best then? The, the, the stuff that was like the, the, the core two or three things that like made it work? I think it was the kind of Sims-like gameplay it had. You know, mm-hmm. your character married and had children and died. And right. then you got to play the next big-nosed character. They all had big noses. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, the family game. I right. think that was what worked the best. Uh, and the military side, not so, not so not much. Not so much, but, yeah. Uh, so what... Um, so what was the um, so how did that change or improve when you moved to Crusader Kings two? Well, I had a much clearer idea on, on where I wanted to take Crusader Kings two um, because Crusader Kings one was still kind of similar to EU, right? And countries had relations between each other, for example, and we couldn't really we didn't really have time to get rid of that code base, you know, that was based around nations. Yeah. So I really wanted to strengthen the character focus and make sure that this is a game about characters and titles and countries are really you know, just resources yeah. <laughs> for your characters and families. It's such a funny, uh, interesting position where part of your development is well, we, we need to take this, we need to save this period of time to implement new features, and we also need to take this period of time to remove features that we're yeah. you know we're inheriting from our code base. Like yeah, and that's kind of that's one of the hardest part of designing sequels. I think you know getting rid of old features yeah. and like you know feature creep mm-hmm. and trying to consolidate all these numbers yeah. that you've added over the years <laughs> yeah but that aren't really warranted so we did a lot of that um, we kind of consolidate all kinds of values into one the opinion system where characters have a unilateral opinion of each other yeah. you know it's not mutual it's kind of one way uh, and that replaced the relations between countries, and it rela- uh, replaced like some infamy or you know bad boy value that we had, and all kinds of other things really. Um, right. And it's all that we needed, you know. If if I attack a neighbor, then my close neighboring uh, rulers will probably be upset, but people who are further away might not care that much, and uh, you know infidels might not care what we are up to yep. <laughs> at all. So it's actually a much better system. Right. Uh, so I'm really happy with that. It's also one that's harder to balance, though, in a way. When you when you have a single bad boy value, it's easy to kind of clamp down and say, oh, you've been yeah. attacking too much, you've been picking on too many weak countries, and you know maybe the AI isn't as good as you would like, or maybe the system isn't meant to handle that. But, hey, we have this number that can kind of curb you a little bit. Yeah. When you don't have that, you have to do something else that, that d- does that in a better way. Exactly. Um, that's true. Um, for example, you know, one, one idea I've kind of a- agonized over with Crusader Kings 2 is should we have some kind of tyranny value, mm-hmm. which is 
it would be kind of a static opinion that everyone has. Right. All my vassals dislike me because of my tyranny by minus 12 or something. Um, and that would carry over so that you know newborn characters would also dislike me. Um, mm. um, because it doesn't work like that now. right now. It's personal. Right. All these opinions. I mean, I've seen stuff like you know, you grab, you take, you take away someone's duchy, and then most of the rest of your vassals are uh, upset about that. Yeah. But like, yeah. So if someone's born, they don't, they don't really consider no. that because it was before their. I mean, time. I mean, we could do it so that kids are actually you know taught by their parents to grow up with this. Do, do you, is there some sort of connection variable where it's like? I mean, there's thousands of player people in the game, yeah. and not all of them are going to be upset because you stole some guy's duchy. It no. must depend upon like how close they are to that. It's, it's kind of the the feudal contract, so it's my vassals, my right. nobles will be upset because because they you know, know you could do that to them. Yeah, right. and I, I didn't even have the right to do this because it's part of the liege vassal relationship. But the liege doesn't do that. Right. So I broke the contract, and I also kind of scared them. Yeah. <laughs> so well, you always have to think about that, you know. Appropriate responses are really important, and mm. I think so, especially if you're after emergent narrative and emergent stories, that the world should react in a very meaningful way, an appropriate way. Well, that's always something we've, we've struggled with for the diplomacy system in Civ, for sure, right. is um, because in Civ, it's a very normal thing for people to, to kind of like do the... Um, you, know, you declare war, you fight a battle, you know you're going to win the war, you, may, you, know, you make peace to like yeah. extract some stuff from the guy and then of course you declare war again immediately yeah. so you actually take their cities it's like essentially a, a certain level of extortion right yeah. um, and that's a problem but beyond that like the rest of the world should probably respond or react to that as well yeah. um, and the thing is like we've, we've, we've done that at various times but it only really works if you like spell out directly why they got upset with yeah. you? Like, like we we're negative five because we remember, you know, we remember what you did to the Persians yeah. or, or something along those lines. Well, that, um, that's the system that inspired us uh, originally, actually, civis opinion or relation system. So yeah, well, that that originally started. It's hard to really remember if this is completely true, but it started almost <laughs> it started almost as like a debug thing of like you know I'm writing the AI and I know that. These different, they—they uh, they all definitely told you that you were, they were one in one of the five states for Civ, you know, right. which is like furious, angry, cautious, pleased, friendly. You know, those are like kind of five states. I'm like, well, I don't know necessarily why they're in the states, so I'm going to like put in some code so if I mouse over it, it'll tell me what it is. Um, and that just seemed to work really well, and people were happy to see it. And so we just kept extending it, and making it more right. and more specific and more and more detailed. Um, and uh, that was definitely one of the key moments that um, made clear to me like the importance of like transparency in game design. Right. That you know, people care about the game. People play these games because they care about the systems, what's going on. And there's sometimes you do need to, uh, to hide stuff, but um, you know, you want you want to get the player engaged in the system. You know, you want to make yeah. clear why all the, these different actors in the games are making their decisions. <clears throat> That's a tough one, actually. You know, sometimes you want to hide some stuff. Yeah. Uh, because it detracts a little bit from immersion sometimes, if you know exactly why. Yep. Uh, that's one of the things we've struggled with is, you know, when you make a diplomatic proposal to someone, mm -hmm. should you send this offer and then wait and see yeah. <laughs> uh, what they'll say? 
Or should you immediately see that they will not accept um, that you can't even make the offer? Yeah, uh, I, I really like the way you guys do it, where it's you have the the no, the you know, basically no, yes, and maybe. It's that kind yeah. of how it is, and like, which is nice because then there's some there's some situations where like, okay, this is obviously something that would work, and this is obviously something that wouldn't. So it's great yeah. to, to let the player know that right away. Um, and then there is that kind of like middle ground, uh, and because you guys are real time, like, one of the problems in, in Civ is. Because it's term based, you can kind of I don't know the right way to term it. Like like it's almost like spamming the AI, right? Like there's there's nothing to prevent you just talking to every AI every turn yeah. and ask them for every possible deal. And <laughs> it's not really what we want the player to be doing. Like that doesn't sound much like that much fun, but there's no reason they why they couldn't and they no. probably can eke out a small advantage. Whereas at least in EU there is a bit of a like you you ask for something and it takes a while for you to hear back about it. And, yeah. Um and you, you know, there's, there's a lot of. I said EU. I meant Crusader Kings. Although I oh, suppose it's, it's, it's the, the same, same system, really. the same in uh, EU. Um, you know, and there, you know, you can guys can layer a number of different things on top of stuff to prevent players from kind of just yeah. spamming the AI. Yeah, uh, it's harder to prevent the AI from spamming you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's actually a real issue we have. You know, yeah, it's for keep sure. Posting marriages over and over. Yeah, like why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> come on, come on, guys. <laughs> what about this other son I have? <laughs> yeah, I know. Are you <laughs> sure? I have another son. Yeah. They're twins. Yeah. <laughs> is he better? Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible how hard it is to like encode, anticipate like what it's going to look, what's going to feel like to the player. Yeah. You know, when you bring up this proposal, right? Um, because it's so hard to anticipate what they're thinking at that time. Yeah. No, so that, that's uh, interesting, you know, the turn-based versus real-time constraints mm. that you have there Definitely. Uh, as well. Although our games are actually you know, micro-turn-based, I yeah. guess you would say. I mean, you can, uh, you can make them go pretty slow yeah. if you want to. So yeah. You could play them day by day <laughs> yeah. if you wanted to. Yeah. So th there are probably some shared issues that we, we have, even though you're not strictly yeah, turn-based. Yeah, <laughs> Diplomacy is one of the. I, this is kind of, I think, the direction we're heading in with the whole Crusader <laughs> Kings two discussion is just the the challenge of representing that, of making that work. And Crusader Kings two is definitely, I would say, a top two game in terms of ever representing diplomacy in a digital form. Just because I I think you're absolutely right to focus more on the narrative, on the story, on the characters, and less so on even mechanics say. I mean, obviously mechanics are a part of it, but it's yeah. more about, oh, that guy did this, this person's crazy, this person, you know, tried to kill that person. And it's yeah. not so much about how that actually plays out, but how it feels, how it, you know, your perception of who these people are and what they're doing, why they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, although I want, you know, I had a pretty clear idea of emergent gameplay and so on when designing Crusader Kings 2, I still, you know, I still thought that the main selling point would probably be Again, as with all our previous games, you know, historical accuracy and and the military side. So I was a little bit surprised hmm. by that's actually really interesting. Yeah, at least for me, it's so clear that this is the Hook. revolutionary yeah. aspect to the game that separates it from no, it, just it was, your other games. It was but. my hope, you know, we <laughs> hoped that would be the case, but mm. I couldn't quite bring myself to believe it, if you will. And you know, our fans expect historical accuracy, and they're constantly, right. you know, pushing for that. Hmm, so that's it's, a good it's kind of easy to get lost in that. Kind yeah, of I'd like to hear more about that because it's yeah. probably stuff I didn't I don't necessarily notice. So in Crusader Kings two, obviously every time you start a game, yeah. it starts as exactly accurate as, as it, but then from there it can you know yeah. spiral off to who knows where. Um, and was that 
were were there times when you tried to make it skew closer to history? Like, is that something you kind of... No, my philosophy is we try to do that by, you know, making the simulation so good Mm. that the AI will want to To do do the the historical things. things. We never try to, you know, force something down your throat. It was like, no, (laughs) you're not supposed to do this. (laughs) So now you lose these provinces. That's that's kind of bad. Uh, We never do it that way. (laughs) It's kind of a taller order, though. I mean, making the AI behave that historically is is hard, of course. But it's not that important. We want it to be semi-plausible. But when you think about it, these characters, you know... They were usually very crucial to the development of world history, really. <laughs> right, sure. If some king had died in some battle when he didn't, everything would have changed. Yeah. And history would have gone out the window. Yeah. And uh, it, um, it seems like a shift for you guys over time has been... I, I remember in some of the early games, there's very concrete events. Like, this happened, yeah. these provinces split off. Yeah. Minus eight stability. Whereas I, now, it's a little bit more of that emergent, like, coming out of the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't even know, gameplay-focused, if you yeah. will, and less history-focused, even if the end result is still kind of in the same place. But I could still see how a lot of the audience would react very differently to that, that shift. Yeah, you know, we, we wrestle with that all the time because, yes, we've, we've had that journey, and Europe and Resolve is one was based on a board game, right. which had a lot of these mechanics. You know, A war breaks out you know, somewhere else between these minor powers, and that affects the world. So, uh, so we moved away from that, but at the same time, uh, we kind of lost a little bit of the historical immersion you would get <laughs> with these historical events. So we, we're trying to bring that back, in a sense, but not as deterministic and important as they used to be. So Europa Mersalis 3, for example, was a very you know, gameplay-focused uh, game. There, mm. there weren't really any historical events at all. And people felt, you know, wow, you know I'm playing this blue country. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what, what is that? You know, it's no different from the red country. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of, you know, not where you want to take it either. Yeah, that's a real uh, tricky balance. Um, you know, having the, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward, right? Like you can you can have the game emerge, you know, just develop systematically, and like you know, there's no one trying to push it, nudge it in one direction. And then on the other side, you know, you can be very lockstep about you know the Reformation's coming, you know, whether you do anything about it or not, and it's going <laughs> to yeah. probably happen right here at this time, and, yeah. you know, it probably, either extreme is not really what people want. Uh, it, it always seemed, it always did seem a little bit weird to me. Um, you know, I, I come, I have a history degree, I'm the yeah. guy, you know, this is, this is my thing, and when it's like, yeah, you know, boom, event, res- the Reformation has happened. Yeah. That always felt a little bit weird, even... <laughs> I guess part of it's just the the games are in that weird space between historical simulator and game, and yeah. I don't know, just <laughs> that that is something we again struggle with because you know not everyone who starts a game should have to know about the Reformation <laughs> and that it will happen, you know, sometime in the early. Oh, I shouldn't have converted all no, those provinces. You know, that was a waste of time. That's the difference between like Civ. You know, there are no like earth-shattering events that come along yet. You know fairly regular times right. during each session and teaching players about those do we even want to do that I mean huh? yeah if you want to minimax your, your session and your game you want to know about it right. but you can't reasonably expect it to do that the first time you play it especially if we have like hundreds of these things yeah. um, do, you, do you think you'll ever settle on a specific approach for all future games or is it 
just a feature that you're going to keep tinkering with and changing and trying different angles every time? Yeah, I don't think we have the answers yet, um, but we you know we have our franchises, and you know, I think they're starting to coalesce uh, sure. as to what they should be. You know, yeah. what should European Resolves be? What should Crusader Kings be? And earlier, the, that line or the limit between them had been a little bit confused. I think. Yeah. Uh, well, you're it's definitely by drawing the lines where you are, you're making sort of an explicit statement about world history or, well, especially Western history. Yeah. Uh, because, um, I mean, it's true. You could, you, you could certainly look at that split between, you know, the Middle Ages and the early modern era as, you know, kind of before the concept of a nation and after the concept of a nation, right? Yeah. You know, in, in the Middle Ages, um, you know, quote-unquote nations really were like, well, this is, this is literally the possession of this person, yeah, right, and someone there was a period of time where the King of England also, you know, owned parts of France, and that doesn't mean didn't necessarily mean like he's French now. It's just like he owned that territory, and theoretically, you know, the Habsburgs owned territory all over the place, right? Yeah. And uh, um, I suppose it's tricky because in EU there's that there's more of a transition period, and I'm not sure um, how that plays out. But like in for Crusader Kings. You know, you can fully commit to the, the, this this concept that yeah. you know it's it's um, you know the world existed. You know, the, the the feudal era was about you know a, a king's possessions and their vassals and the vassals' possessions and you know hereditary rule and so on and so forth. And um, as you play the game, you know a lot of people probably understand that concept abstractly. But playing Crusader Kings 2 gives them like a, a deep knowledge of like how that works and how you are going to be very paranoid about, oh man, I don't want to have too many sons, right? You know, it's going to put me in a bad situation. And like, what it, you know, what it means to like, you know, connect families together. And um, it's, um, it, to me, that's, 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 that's wonderful. Like that's, that's the ideal case of like games giving a window into history. Yeah. Well, the problem is, again, that, you know, it can be hard to get into because you can get some really nasty surprises the first time you play the game, and that can be off-putting. Right. You know, not everyone is prepared to lose, yeah. right, early on yeah. through some fluke, essentially. Well, I definitely, uh, want to, I definitely want to talk about this aspect because right. this, is, this is what, to me, is totally fascinating about, uh, about EU and Crusader Kings is, um, you know, having lived in the Civ world for so long, it's like the Paradox Games live in this bizarro world where all the things that we assume are true are not true, right? <laughs> like, um, you know, there's no... Re I mean, there's... You're not necessarily aiming for a specific victory. Um, and it's... expect, Especially in Crusader Kings, where you could be ruling, and then suddenly your king dies, and now maybe you didn't get the succession, and so now you're you're a duke, yeah. right? Like, that you're not... You're, you're not running a nation... You're, you know, you are a specific person, and the the stuff that you did a hundred years ago might no longer apply to you anymore because yeah. now you're, you know, ruling this totally other part of the world. Yeah, yeah, you know, you can you can lose stuff. Like in Civ, it's very, it's extremely hard to make losses yeah. palatable in Civ. Right. So yeah, I think Crusader Kings Two especially lends itself to that because you have this feudal system, you know, right. with vassals and everything, and it's not necessarily game over because you lose the kingdom. In EU, though, <clears throat> it's civ-like in that sense that, you know... You do you, kind of run a nation, you, yeah, right? You lose yeah. provinces in wars, and then you lose more provinces, and then eventually you're destroyed. Right. So it, it's very different. In Crusader Kings 2, 
is good that way, that blobbing is naturally hard in a way. It's inherent in the system. Yeah. But you have to rely on vassals. You cannot own everything yourself. Right. And once you understand that, you kind of you should be able to kind of come to grips with the fact that you can also lose. Yeah. Were you, I, I think it's actually more that it's it's the focus on characters. Yeah. Because when we when we play a game like Civ or EU, we are we are the nation. The nation yeah. is upward trajectory. Everything gets better. You know, it's kind of like the march of history. Right. Whereas if you're a character, you know that characters are young, they're, they have primes of their lives, they get yeah. old, and they die. Or sometimes they just die of disease. And that's a thing we know and we're familiar with. And it's just ingrained in us. It's expected that I'm playing as this person. Time is passing. This person is getting older. It's going to end. Something is going to happen. So it's almost like a palatable form of failure as opposed to like this ethereal... Like everything should get better versus something that's very much more relatable. Yeah, that's always how I felt about it, anyways. Yeah, and that's part of what's made it special for me. Yeah, I mean, it's nice. It's explicit that you're essentially playing consecutive lives, and I mean, there's almost kind of bizarre similarities with a game like Rogue Legacy, right? Like, have you both played that? Oh, I haven't. <laughs> okay, that's like a procedural Castlevania type game, right? But each time you're going through, you're playing the next generation All right. of the family, um, and the like. The gold you earn can be kind of spent to help out the your son and then your oh. grandson and then so on and so forth and uh, I mean you could look at Crusader Kings 2 almost like the same way right like yeah. and, and you know they'll be they'll be members of the family that have glorious reigns and there's ones that you know don't lead to much yeah. at all and maybe you know even lose the crown um, but um, if you message it right like that's almost you know like yeah I, I would think like it would the game would do well to have like some very explicit screen that shows these are the people that you've ruled, and you know these have been your five characters so far, and this is how they've done. And I understand that every time they die, like the the prestige and the the piety go into the score. Yeah. Is that right? Um, and uh, uh, I kind of wonder. I, I imagine that might be something you're thinking about. There might be better ways to, to do that. No, it's it's very fascinating to hear you say that, and and that's very encouraging because it's one of the things that I really want to do in, in a future expansion right a chronicle basically yeah uh, well, and, well bizarrely know. enough I think you should play really play Rogue Leg- Legacy uh, <laughs> like, I should yeah apparently I should <laughs> strange connections with Crusader Kings yeah. no I, I'd really like to have this kind of medieval style chronicle you, are, you know there are you know medieval chronicles yeah. like the chronicle Melrose and, and mm-hmm. so on and when you read them, they're really fascinating. Yeah. No, hilarious. When when nothing much happened, it's like, you know, a dragon washed ashore in the land of the West Saxons. <laughs> okay. Yep. <laughs> Don't say. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you have a source like, for that. Actually, you know, one of the Irish chronicles had, like, creatures like moles fell from the sky mm. uh, with sharp teeth and were driven <laughs> off with prayer and fasting. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> what, what was that? What happened there? Yeah. <laughs> I, I always want, I've always wanted to make an RPG from the era that took like some of those old, like the travels of, of Mandeville or like some right. of those real old old books and like just assume that everything they said was true. Actually true. Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll just pretend like all this bizarre stuff they believed was, was actually yeah. true. Um, no, I mean, I think that would make uh, perfect sense to have in the game. Yeah. After all, you know, the narrative and the emergent stories are kind of the strong point of the game. There's no question about that. So why not help the player, you know, chronicle Focus these events? This. I mean, that, the outcome, um, the, the, the result of a, of a game of Crusader Kings 2 should be this interesting story. Yeah. That's about That's all what, you can do, right? Exactly. Like, what, what happens at the end? Like, obviously there's no, like, you win or you lose. 
like is it just a screen comes up and like <clears throat> this is your number yeah pretty much there's a comparison with other dynasties. Okay. You know? So your score that is compared to them. Other ones that you've played on? No, historical Oh, dynasties. historical. Okay, yeah. kind of like the what Sid likes to do at the end of his game. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like, okay. Again, inspired by Sid. Right, sure. <laughs> the, go- the god of game design. Right. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people actually get to that point, because I've played a lot of Crusader Kings 2, and I've never seen that. I've never gotten to the end. It's kind of like the story waxes and wanes, and then I'm kind of like, okay, that was that story. Right. You know, I'm... I always tend to play Sweden. I don't know why. It's, <laughs> it's something. Well, that's maybe a native. <laughs> I always, I always play Norway. Right. <laughs> so that makes more sense. Well, it's in my, <coughs> it's in my genes. Yeah, I'm three quarters Norwegian. All right. Um, so I'm always fighting the Swedes. You yeah. know how it's supposed to be pronounced? Sauron. Uh, so, yeah. Sauron. So, sorry. Well, it's Swedish. <laughs> sorry. It name. all comes back around. Yeah, I've always heard like a, a sort of Siren. Siren. Uh, that's a bit, yeah. If it's Swedish, it's okay. Sauron. Okay. <laughs> if it's not well, Sauron. So Joker is all... Well, that doesn't help me. <laughs> Good for you guys. Yeah. Right. The, 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 the less closer I am to Sauron is probably the better. But Sauron, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, another thing that um, I find really interesting about like, comparing <clears throat> excuse me, the um, Crusader King system to the Civ system is another big thing that is not there. That's also a problem for Civ is that, you know, you guys have temporary armies and limited wars and you need the, you need, you need the reason to start the war. Um, It's almost like it's a, it's a game mechanic, right? And like, even after the war ends, you don't necessarily get the provinces that you attacked. In fact, you probably don't, right? Well, Um, depends. It depends. (laughs) It depends on the situation. But the game will tell you, like you start this war and you, you know, if you, Get them to surrender. This is what you'll get. If you get a white piece, this is what you'll get. You know, it's, yeah. it's a, there's a, a very heavy structure on what a war means. Whereas in Civ, it's like everything is just total war, basically. Yeah. You know, like everything you you if you sit on something, you get it, and you can basically. I mean, there have been times when you know your democracy, you can't declare war, but uh, the game the game is kind of the series has kind of moved away from that. Generally, yeah. usually the the player is control of. And I think rightly so. I, I don't think Civ is the kind of game that should have that mechanic, uh, but it's you know prior to the the emergent narrative stuff that we have in Crusader Kings two, that's been one of the main things that separates our games from other games. You know, having this kind of reason for war uh, mechanic, mm-hmm. we've always had that. I think it's a legacy from the board game, actually, European Solids. Okay, interesting. It goes back that yeah. far. Yeah. Um, I mean, that. I think that's great. I mean, I think that's. Um, to me, that's one of the big lessons from like Euro board games in general is uh, like you know think of like Settlers of Catan, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, it's it's a it's a competitive game, um, and uh, you know, obviously, if you want to, you want to cause problems to other players. Right, yeah. but but Catan like limits the ways you can do that. You know, you have to roll a seven so you can move the the robber, or you have to play a knight. Um, yeah. You know, it, you know, there's, you, you know, there, there's there's no way for you. It's like it's just your turn. Like, well, I'm going to attack John this turn, right? Like, if it's risk, you can do that, right? But like uh, a lot of a lot of the the Euro games, you know, have you know ways to interact with players but they're they're often interact and they're they're limited yeah um and that really changes the feel of the game and that's that's basically where crusader kings is as well yeah i suppose so um 
I admire board games and especially many of these new board games because mm. they're so condensed. Sure. And yeah. they have this like mathematical balance mm -hmm. that is so perfect and, and based around these agonizing choices. Impossible. Especially Yeah. <laughs> especially German board games, I yeah. think, because they're really into this, you know. You have these many actions you can do. Yeah, yeah. So you have to you want to pick, do you know, four things, but you can only do three. You <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. You, know, you always want to do more, and you can. It's like, so I, I love that, but uh, I'm not sure how much you can translate into computer games because computer games have other strong points, which is you know the chaos of an extremely complex situation or simulation can can give rise to interesting things, and you don't really have that in board games. Yeah, uh, it's a very interesting relationship between um, yeah. video games and board games. Uh, I think there's a bit of a Maybe it's a similar analogy to like the relationship between like film and theater, and that like uh, you know I think a lot of movie directors like really admire what yeah. happens in the theater, but at the same time they're you know they're just very very different media, yeah. um, and uh, you know they 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 realize that they have since they have the capacity to do good films like that's what they should focus on, but there's a lot to learn from you know what yeah. a great great theater director could do like that's that's how I often like are thinking it like I don't think I would be good at making board games or at least it doesn't take advantage of what my personal strengths are like yeah. it's a big advantage that I can program and I can make these these complicated games um you know whereas to you know be able to boil everything down to just this tiny rule set. Um, and something that fits into this, this small period of time and is still fun, that would be a, that would be a big challenge for me. But yeah. I see a lot to my, admire there and a lot to learn from. It would almost be paralyzing in a way. Mm. Just because you know how simple it, and elegant it can be, you'd want it to be perfect in so many ways. And I could see that being a barrier to actually making something good. Whereas programming is like, well, we just got to start writing code. We right. got to yeah. start getting it in there and you tweak it and you make it. But with board gaming because there's so many opportunities to kind of boil that down and it seems like that would at least for me I'd be, I wouldn't even know where to start I'd, I'd spend so much time figuring out every little piece that it probably wouldn't add up to as much as it could yeah no it's uh, as I say I think it's hard to translate it to computer games but what I would like to take away from that or if I could learn anything from board games is kind of the balancing of stuff you know making sure everything is mathematically sound and balanced mm -hmm. almost like in you know you know, Blizzard does this, I guess, in StarCraft and so on. They really have to focus on that because of the eSport aspect of the yeah. game. Do you, I mean, do you, do you think about balance for Sierra Kings? Like, it seems like you don't necessarily even need to because, like, people can people are basically opting into, like, I want to be, you know, France or something, you know, yeah. which is going to be, I'm going to be powerful or I'm just going to be one, you know, I'm going to be one of the tiny countries and, like, just try to survive yeah. and... No, you're right, and, and you know the smallest thing can have this butterfly effect that just throws everything out of complete whack anyway. So it's not yeah. really that important, but for certain game systems like combat and so on, you know, you you want to have balance between the troop types yeah. and, and that this is stuff that's supposed to be predictable. Um, so yes, in I some way, I suppose you want the different aspects of the game, like you know the the castles versus the te the the. The uh, temples versus the yeah. towns to have a certain level of exactly. balance. So that's like stuff. you're not always choosing the the, the same thing over right. and over again. Um, yeah, yeah. The combat is. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts about like more about how the combat system works because that's something I don't. I definitely do not understand yet. No. I mean, I mean, played through played through the game a bit, and uh, um, in, in Civ, the fact that troops live forever, um, like just is a dominating factor about that game. And yeah. It's so dominating that it's like it's not something 
that I think I've ever even considered changing. Like it's something I didn't know I could change, right? right. And then seeing in Crusader Kings, like, well, you you know, you levy up, you levy your troops, and you know, you're gonna be able to keep them for a certain period of time, and then you know, your vassals are gonna get upset. And you're gonna need to disband them, and that's yeah. just like the natural cycle, you know, that like you know, just that just radically changes, you know, the the, the feel of it. Um, was that the was that the feel you were aiming for, or is that just like a natural result of kind of the way things worked back then? It was a feel we were aiming for with the Crusader Kings one. Um, of course, it's inspired by real history and how yeah. it actually worked. Mm-hmm. So we, we wanted to try that. And yeah. I guess if it hadn't been fun, we would have changed our minds. Right. But it did turn out that it actually worked pretty well. Okay. Now, what I don't like about Crusader Kings two and the levies we have is that you have too little control over. You know, placing archers and pikemen, you know, and the various troop types in which flank do you, do I want them? Because you get these chunks of levies that contain all kinds of troop types. So you have this interesting system where you can place your troops in the three flanks, you know, that mm-hmm. were the center and the two flanks, um, but you don't really have control over the exact uh, troop type composition. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. a, that's definitely a flaw. So uh, that that whole system. I would almost challenge whether it's useful to have at all. But the uh, flanks? No, the, the entire combat system. Like, obviously, there should be military mm-hmm. in the game. But, you know, I played the game, not a lot, but some. And, you know, I would slow the game down, and I would mouse over that little combat screen and try to right. understand what was going on. And I still didn't have a sense that I understood what was going on. No. Then I look at the technology screen and, you know, you have all, you know, like seven or eight different categories and they're going up and down. And I understand that, like, you know, I can get different mercenaries with different compositions of troops, but at the end of the day, like, I don't have, like, a general sense of, like, what's what's better or why you'd make one choice right. or over another. Yeah. Um, as opposed to... Um, I mean, it's odd. Like, it wouldn't it wouldn't make sense to suggest a simpler combat system than Civ, right? That's kind of weird. But at the same time, like, I don't know if the game would necessarily be worse if it was just like you just have I got two thousand troops, you got four thousand troops. Like, you know, I, I'm in I'm in trouble. No, I mean, uh, the game could work with that. Um, as I said, you know, we we always had the sense that we needed to focus on the military side of the game, and the historical accuracy as well. Yeah, but I think you know. You might be right. You know, honestly, it's not really crucial yeah. <laughs> to what's fun about the game. It kind of becomes noise, uh, you know. And what yeah. I'm afraid of is like, well, I don't understand this. Probably, I should understand this. Yeah. And once I, but once I, once I do understand it, I'll just be 50% better at the game. But it's not necessarily like why I'm playing the game. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's that would be a big difference. But I also think that we kind of just didn't managed to realize the vision there <clears throat> because I, I wanted to have this interesting little mini game or meta game right. where you could actually accomplish stuff by moving your archers to the left flank mm-hmm. and so on and that would have an effect and you would see the troops like use different tactics against each other uh, flank versus flank um, mm-hmm. you know, and then pursue them and, and run them down and so on so that could actually have probably done with some 3D battle or visual representation of what was going on there yeah. So you would actually see that clearly. So, but either or, either you simplify it and kind of remove it, or you you go the whole uh, yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you have so to like make pretty clear like why this stuff. I I, yeah. I I'm afraid that it may be something that falls. Have you heard the thing Sid likes to say where he wants to make sure that the fun the fun is being had by the player and not by the computer. 
Yeah. Like the, the <laughs> it's very true. The, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the combat in in Crusader Kings looks like one of those situations where the, where computer, the computer is having, having a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah, it was probably very fun to design the system, and there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm in, I'm involved. Right. Um, and um, there probably are ways to do that. Like you could probably still have the different different types of troops, but you might almost want to think of like the combat in these different phases, and almost even make it turn-based if possible. I'm not sure how you do that mm. in a real-time game. Tricky. But, like, <laughs> but, but like, I mean, you could have, like, there are these three or four periods of time, three or four moments in combat where you get to make some decision. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there's, like, three core decisions. You know, do you want to charge net? Do you want to charge the right flank? Do you want to charge the left flank? Or do you want to, you want, do you want to hold? And you'll see some timer ticking down. Like, you have this long until you to make a decision. Yeah. Right? And then once you make a decision got some sort of order, but you have to make it totally clear that you made this decision and this led to that result. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the key thing. Right? Yeah. It's the, it's no, that's so, true. It's so um, abstracted that it's hard to... It's, and it's always been that way because the game is on the giant province map. Yeah. So how do you then do something with combat that's very clear and also makes sense? It's, yeah. It is a very difficult problem. I mean, we, it's a thing we've considered from time to time that you would be able to give orders during combat mm-hmm. in all of our games. But it doesn't work well in multiplayer, yeah. <laughs> especially. Yeah. And that's another thing. We really want to maintain the focus on, on multiplayer and make sure it's fun. And to have your attention split between three simultaneous battles or four, you know, and giving mm-hmm. orders, that isn't feasible. Yeah. You would have to allow players to pause all the time, then, and that would break up the flow of the game. Right. We also considered like having, you know, giving standing orders to your armies uh-huh. before the battle happens. You know, you're supposed to do this. I believe, you know, you should charge the left flank, for example. Yeah, and that's something we haven't tried yet, but it, I still think it's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's tough. I mean, like the, the the tough part is at this point, my perception of the combat is purely just I want a bigger number than the other guy. Yeah, like that's all I necessarily understand. But I'd like to hear, like, what are your like, do you understand the combat system Not deeply really. enough that, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that you don't fight that many battles. Yes. Like, in a game of Civ, you fight a lot of battles, one unit wins, one unit dies. Mm-hmm. And you learn very quickly. The feedback is immediate you learn step, very... You learn step by step. Yeah, you're like, nice. okay, I attacked his pikeman with a warrior. Oh, that didn't go well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly, okay, warriors don't attack pikemen. Very, very clear, yeah. and uh, it's 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 more granular in a way. Um, and this is this is actually something I'm working through a little bit with at the gates. Where what is the focus of the combat? You have these armies now, so it's not a stack of units. It's actually an army and how they interact with one another. So I'm trying to make it so that there's simplified unit roles where. Okay, cavalry can move further, but and they and they have higher strength than infantry. But the strength is all that matters. There's really no tactics within the battle itself, and I have no idea if that's going to work. Right. But the idea is okay. It's very clear what this is, what it does, and yeah, the feedback from the battle. Okay, cavalry are strong, infantry are weak, and trying to add more granularity than that. I do. It's 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 tricky because you want to add more. You want there to be something interesting there. <laughs> you always it, want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it, but it, it might be one of those things where it's just to get to to make what's there fun. It has to be it has to be less in a way. Yeah. I don't. It's it's something I thought about as well. Like if I were designing this game, what would I do? And I I still don't know. It's yeah. 
Yeah. Of course, I don't have to, but... I mean, do you have even a sense of, like... So, you know, you have military technologies, right? And, like, there's mm-hmm. times you can spend some your some of your technology points to upgrade, you know, various ones. Like, do you have a sense you're making the right choice when you do those? The the decisions are very... There are, there are fewer and more discrete decisions than in the game of Civ. So in Civ, there might be 80, 100 technologies. In right. At The Gates, I'm looking at literally 12, right. I believe. And it's very, very chunky things. Like, you can build boats now. Mm-hmm. That's, right. very, that's very clear. Yeah. Or you can build, um, I don't know, siege weapons. You right. can build catapults now. So it's very, very discreet in that sense. And uh, a couple of the technologies are to upgrade those and right. just say, all right, now we're using steel. Okay, strength goes up by three. Right. So it's very clear, very chunky. And okay. some people will say, oh, well, you know, there should be more granularity. This isn't what I'm used to. And that's... You know, that's fine. People can like what they like. But this is kind of my way of paring it back down, almost more of in the board game style. Yeah. Okay, you have fewer, more obvious things. There's yeah. not this upgrade chain like, okay, this turns into this, turns into this, turns into right. this. It's, okay, now I built siege weapons. That's a big deal. But I think you almost had to start at that end, you know, and, and iterate through <laughs> or, or build upon something you already have. And that's proven to work and balanced and so on. Yeah, it's, it's something, honestly, I still know what the ultimate result's going to be. It's, right. it's part of that pacing, balance right. chain that's kind of the last thing to yeah. fully come together. And I like it in terms of design. I think it... I say, okay, well, you know, this appeals to me. Uh, I think it will appeal to players when they say, oh, I just got boats. That's a huge deal as opposed right. to... I got, boat, I got boat mark one, I got boat mark two, I got boat mark three, I got boat mark four, which yeah. is stronger. It has more moves. It, we'll see. Yeah. So now, like, I'm curious about now is like so. Comparison to Crusader Kings two, you know they've got like what seven or eight military technologies. Like, do you do you have a so you know you say you still have sort of a fairly limited understanding of the system. Like when you spend those technology points in Crusader Kings, like do you feel like you're picking at random, or do you feel like you actually understand where what would be best to like invest that technology points? It's tough to say because it's been a little while since I played, but my my feeling was always that it didn't because I didn't have as much of a grasp on the combat system. It, uh-huh. it hurt me, and that's really in a lot of ways what's steering my design decisions now is okay, clarity, 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 right. and you need depth, of course. But you know how how do you do both? How do you get both? And the kind of the 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 focus in At The Gates is very much different from a game like Civ, for example, where you make a lot of decisions that many of which are of questionable value. Whereas in At The Gates, it's okay, you make, it's more, again, the board style, where you make a few decisions, very discreet, very important. Um, but I do think that the kind of lack of clarity in the combat system on my part with Crusader Kings hurt the technology system that was linked to it. Um, right. Uh, but like I said, it's, it's a little bit tough now because it's been probably yeah. a year since I've played. Yeah. The, te- the technology system in Crusader Kings, both the first and the second game, has always been a little bit of an afterthought. Mm. It's like, we need a technology system, <laughs> but in medieval <laughs> times, there was very little progress, yeah. really. It's kind of hard to have at least many technologies that, yeah. that make I, sense. I feel your pain. Dark <laughs> ages are even worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was some development, but you know, we, we probably have more categories than we need mm. just because you're supposed to have that kind of thing. It's definitely, uh, hard, it's definitely hard for me to wrap my head around the idea of like different 
provinces of different technology levels. That's yeah. That's also I, another. I, I understand why you, you do that, but uh, that's that is very different from CIF, obviously. Um, yeah, the spreading technology system. Yeah, it's, it's kind of neat. I mean, I like that. I like that concept, and I think the other two technology sections uh, would be civil and social or whatever uh, they're called uh, economy and cultural basically. yeah economy and cultural uh, those those work pretty well for me I was able to get a pretty clear sense of like what what the results and I was waiting yeah. for like technology points so I could like you know yeah. get a larger demands or whatever I think part of that goes back to again what it's connected to with the combat system because it's because there's cool things going on there but you can't see them as well it's like okay, this probably matters. It's like you were saying, Soren. This probably matters, but I don't know how. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's kind of almost yeah stressful in a way. Yeah, it's hard to balance. Also, I mean, some of them are su- clearly superior to the others. So. Yeah. Now, I'd like to get back to one one thing you mentioned about you know afraid to make a decision about combat where you give choices because you wanted to you wanted to make sure the game still worked in multiplayer. Mm-hmm. So this is this is something that you know probably comes up a lot you know there's this tension between you know are you committing you know is, is a game single player focused is it yeah. multiplayer focused is it trying to 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 you know satisfy both communities and if when you do that there is going to be some sort of cost to the game design because you're cl- you're going to be closing off certain possibilities and here's yeah. like a, a clear example of that you know the fact that you're supporting both single player and multiplayer means you can't do this this specific type of game design absolutely um, so how is your what is your sense about like the multiplayer community for Crusader Kings 2 and like um, what like how do you how do you view how do you view that tension like when you're when you've been designing the Paradox games it's frustrating at times um, I don't think we've started getting metrics for this how okay. many people play multiplayer uh, uh-huh. versus single player and so on and EU4 seems to be very popular as a multiplayer game okay I don't have the figures yet for Crusader Kings 2, but I think they're lower, mm-hmm. you know. And the game is more of a single-player game <laughs> yes. than EU4. Feels like it, yeah. yeah, because you need to think more about your marriages, and you, you need to stop and think basically yeah. at more times during the game. The multiplayer are your vassals. It kind of seems yeah. like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, exactly. So I don't know. Personally, I only play our games in single-player usually. Um, mm. And it's it interests me more. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, adapting I'm adapting to multiplayer thinking basically, and not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's pretty frustrating sometimes. Yeah, I think it's sort of uh, interesting me in theory that the paradox games can be played in multiplayer. Like I have a hard time imagining doing it. Have you? Hearts of Iron, it's beautiful. I could see that. Beautiful. I could. I could it's see so that working. Fun. Sure, right. I could see that totally working. Even four works very well as well. Yeah. It's yeah. really fun in multiplayer. Yeah. It's it that is that's such a hard decision because you know that if you did if you did just say okay we're we're doing it Crusader Kings it's a single player game yeah right if you make that decision you probably know immediately like five things you could do right that, yeah that could theoretically make the game better but like how do you judge that in the overall balance of stuff it's like <laughs> there's no there's no good answer there no I'm afraid not um, but it's, sometimes it's really helpful to think in these terms as well you know. It can streamline the game, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Maybe you don't want to go down these, you know, very involving and thought-intensive roads in the game design that you you could do in single player. It right. could be kind of a dead end. <laughs> That's true as well. Yeah. So it might actually help you to to get a good pacing in the game. Right. To consider the multiplayer aspect. 
Yeah. It's but, like when you're working with a lesser budget almost, you know, you have to kind of <laughs> yeah. you know, slim it down and make it better. Well, it's definitely a constraint. Yeah. And I do imagine that you guys could have issues with, with you know, preventing yourselves from going too deep on, on yeah. specific game mechanics or, or mm -hmm. systems. Yeah, and, and, you know, when you discover that you spend this much th time <laughs> thinking about something that maybe, you know, isn't even fun, right. then, then that's the wrong way. That's you know, the wrong decision yeah. to go. Uh, Earlier, we, you also mentioned there was something that oh, I remember it was it was uh, the the way you raise levies in in the Middle Ages and yeah. is you know you're using basically that system and it turned out to be fun, yeah. right? So what what stuff did you try to do from the Middle Ages that did not turn out to be fun, or maybe it all did? But like, it'd be interesting to hear like are there right. things that that you wish you could represent you know accurately, but like are, you know are not possible. Yeah. Uh, one example I have is in the first game you actually represented the population uh, segments in mm -hmm. the various provinces. Mm -hmm. So you actually had the clergy and the peasants uh, and the nobility, and they had some it's kind like of like a different percentage. Yeah, sort of. Well, you, you couldn't see how many there were, but you could see how powerful they were. Okay, so it's kind of abstract, and you could change the power that the clergy had versus the peasants mm -hmm. or the nobility. This would be the lowest tier of nobility that isn't actually characters in the game, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't fun to mess around with it. It took too much time. And I guess it's similar to in EU3, you had these province decisions. You could take specific decisions in the provinces. Yeah. And it was too fiddly and micromanaging, and yeah. it didn't, didn't work out. But it's familiar to anyone who has read about medieval history, mm. you know, that you had these Extension. classes. Yeah. And uh, we wanted to represent that. It didn't work. Yeah. That's really funny. So, I, I tried uh, to do something similar in At the Gates <laughs> and then took that out. Yeah, right. It's the the idea of having the social classes is so right. appealing, and then yeah. you actually try it, and it doesn't yeah, well, work what, quite what, as well. Exactly. What's it supposed to do? Yeah. I mean, uh, seems like it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's one yeah. of these things that's not going to interact very well with the map, you know? And, like, it seems like that's kind of the core of what makes a lot of these yeah. games work. Um, yeah. I mean, Crusader, Crusader Kings is kind of unique in the head, in that, like, the family tree structure. Well, which which does of course interact very directly with provinces and who yeah. knows what, but like that is an extra system, which which was but, but it's core to the game, right? Like the whole thing is based around that, yeah. um, as opposed to kind of. I mean, a lot of history games kind of have the have that kind of like fractal problem of like you know, one of the core ideas is a fractal is you can keep zooming in, right? Like you can everything you zoom into, you can just zoom in farther, right? And so yeah, like yeah, yeah. there's no <laughs> bottom, there's yeah. no bottom, right? For for like a historical <laughs> game. Um, and I, I imagine that's something you <laughs> think about a lot, right? Yeah, it's really tough, that one. And also the expectations that our player base has on us. Mm. The stuff we need to have in the game, like the investiture conflict and stuff. And again, it, it's similar to the Reformation. It's something that happened at some point in history. And most people know that there was a conflict between the Pope and the, and the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And they expect that to be there somewhere in the game, because it's historical. Yep. But it's, you know, it's not worth the effort, I think, to spend too much time thinking about one one single occurrence that happened, you know, happened over a couple of decades, right? Uh, so, yeah. But zooming in, yes, definitely. You, you know, we could go into cultural stuff. Uh, you know, Rus Vita <laughs> has written a new poem, and you know, everyone is interested in that. And right. Yeah, yeah. What What were women's <laughs> like in in the <laughs> cloisters? It's like. I would say that's that's uh, that's a huge advantage that you guys have over uh, the kinds of games that Soren and I have made, where right. 
you know, Sora and I have talked about it before. You make your Civ game, and then you've made it. It's like, what do you do with the next one? <laughs> yeah, what do you one? do? Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> whereas with, you know, you or Crusader Kings, it's like, oh, what what new aspect do we want to focus on this time? And there's there's always something new there. I, I'm sure it gets harder each time. But, yes. Um, but there is at least something there, as opposed to Civ, where it's like... It's so yeah, hard to mess know. with that winning formula, uh, in a way. Yeah, that's how I view Civ. It's kind of really, it's so good the way it is, and the rules are so simple and under, you know easy to understand. Uh, it's hard to see where you would take it. Yeah, from there. Well, that's the challenge with Civ is deciding which uh, parts can't change. Yeah, you know. At this um, point, there's quite a few. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot. We've had a hand in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now I've heard um, I've heard a lot of people speak very um, positively about uh, your guys' expansion system. Mm-hmm. Um, with with Crusader Kings, um, and um, you know, you kind of you know layer in some um, you know, there's some part of history that you hadn't really tackled, yeah. you know, in, in the, the main release, and so you kind of like take them bit by bit. Um, was that something that you always? Is that something that you planned to do from the very beginning, or have you guys built that? Figured no, that wait, as you that, got along? that was the plan, basically. Um, and we love making patches <laughs> because we want to improve on our games. Yeah. We we never see them as quite finished, you know. But if we didn't do this, we would probably do a sequel sooner instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love it. Uh, I love the fact that we can add stuff for free yeah. because you know people will buy the non-free part of the expansions as well. Yeah. Yeah. How do you? Uh, so how do you view that that tension? Like, do you do you feel this is better than doing a sequel? And like, why? If so, why? Well, it's easier to work with what you already have, right? You know, and and make it better and refining it. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it works when you make a sequel. You kind of had to change some fundamental things yeah. that wouldn't really be a sequel. Uh, so I kind of like to polish yeah. uh, I guess an existing a, game. I guess it's a bit like the console generations, right? Yeah. Like every time they end, people are like, oh man, we had it all figured out. And now we have to like, <laughs> yeah. have to start over from scratch. Like we were really making progress there. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's, you know, it's always a leap of faith when you start with a new game. You don't really know whether it's going to gel and be fun. Mm-hmm. But when you're working on an existing game, you know, and you can easily see, you just you implement this. I code this, and then right. I test it, and I see, yeah, this is going to be good. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, I think we're, it's probably time for us all to move on to whatever next. I, I have written down, though, that one thing I want to make sure I do before going right. is to get you to pronounce your name. All right. I know I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to butcher it. No, that, that's hard for Swedes as well, uh, but it's Henrik Foreos. Foreos. Yeah. Okay. We we did this for uh, too many game design roundtable as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are too many letters in that surname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I had to spell it a number of times before I. Oh, this wow, that's how you do it. Okay. Yeah. No, it's it's an ancient spelling of an island in Sweden. Wow. Basically. So Far, Foreos. Fore is an island north of Gotland. It's a uh-huh. small island. Okay. So the family is from there, and back then it was spelled with an extra age uh, because they did it. Like that, <laughs> for whatever reason, right. archaic. They didn't give you the little circle on your badge. The little circle. Oh, yeah. for the over the A. Yeah. No, no, they didn't. <laughs> I can't. I wonder why. Uh, no, that's um, always funny as well. When I travel, you know, we in Sweden we usually the our first name is not the actual first name. You know, the the name we use. Mm. Um, so when you travel to the U.S., for example, they wanted to. Uh, 
put your first your actual first name as in your passport. But okay, so what's your first name? So my first name is John. Oh, I'm John Henrik oh. Frederick. Okay, <laughs> like three names. The third. Yeah, no, 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 it's it's very common that you actually use your second or third name uh-huh. as your actual first name. Sure. So that's kind of confusing. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what's your real first name, Soren? Uh, it is Soren. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because actually my cousins <laughs> are half Norwegian, half Swedish, and actually that's, some of them have been uh, do that, that oh. their, hmm. their middle name is the one that we know them by. Um, my cousin is Eric, but his first name is actually Jack. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that defend, descends from like the Swedish <laughs> tradition or not. <laughs> seems like seems like you, you have, you have the, the, the first name, which is very, I guess, plain, at least to an English speaker. It's like... You know, John. Okay. Yeah. And then Henrik. No, when I that sounds very Swedish. Yes. I'm biased, I suppose. <laughs> when I travel, I'm John uh, because immigration likes that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. they, they don't like your. Don't don't tell me the story. I don't no. care. <laughs> What's your first name? Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for taking time to talk to us today. Thanks, yeah, guys. This was, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah.